welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Father, thank you for this time together. We thank you for the freedom that we have to be able to come and to be able to study your word. And we ask you, blessed Holy Spirit, that you would be present among us to make it alive to us, to speak to us, that this would be more than just an intellectual exercise, but that as we delve into your word, you would uh, shape us and make us people um, who rightly reflect the Lord Jesus. So be with us as we study. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Hey, welcome. Thank you again for coming. Um, Last week we kicked off our dive into John and barely got through the prologue. Um, If you are here for the first time, uh, what we did last week is dealt with some preliminary issues, things like authorship, um, date, um, key themes, and then uh, once we'd Uh, set set the scene as it were, we looked at the first 18 verses of John which are called the prologue and it's an incredibly powerful introduction to John's gospel. It starts off in the beginning was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. You can't get much more powerful than that. If you go through the parenthetical material in the prologue and jump to uh, the next crucial verse, it's verse 14, which says, and the word was made flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. And then if you go down to verse 18, which is the other key verse in the prologue, no man has seen God at any time, but the only begotten Son, or some old manuscripts have the only begotten God, he hath uh, declared him. He's brought him out into the open. He's done an exegesis on the Father heart of God. So we looked at that and then got a little further. We began talking about John's ministry and then uh, ground to a halt at nine o'clock, having not even got through chapter one. Uh, I'm gonna leave the rest of chapter one for you to read. It is about the calling of the first disciples. John the Baptist points to Jesus and says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. And two of his disciples hear that and go following Jesus. Jesus turns around to them, asks a profound question, what do you seek? That's, that's worth thinking about. Anyway, they are so touched with the conversation that they have with Jesus that seems to last most of that day that they go off to get relatives, one, uh, one to get his brother, the other, to get Andrew to get Peter, James to get, uh, sorry, John to get James. Suddenly there's Philip and then there's Nathaniel. And by the end of chapter one, you've got a small group. Chapter two is the, uh, as you come to the end of chapter one, there's a sequence of seven days that are outlined, ending in a wedding feast. And uh, a lot of commentators would say the idea of seven days draws your attention back to Genesis. Uh, which if you look at also finished with a wedding pretty much on the last portion of that week. Um, And there's echoes of Genesis in there. Um, Other people point out the fact that Jesus' public ministry starts with a wedding ceremony and of course will be culminated with an eschatological wedding ceremony in which there will also be no want of wine. If you want to read Isaiah chapter 25, at some point in time there is a portion in there that talks prophetically about this 
feast. But I want to pick it up from John chapter 2 and uh, read with you the first 11 verses. So if you have your Bibles, you might like to follow along. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. By the way, that's Mary's last recorded words in scripture. Not bad words for the last ones. Whatever he tells you, do it. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim, and he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feasts. So they took, so they took it, when the master of the feast tasted the water now became wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first, and then when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you've kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So we have Jesus at a wedding with his disciples. Um, that, by the way, provides some, some people at least with real problems. It seems that Jesus is way too comfortable in the midst of this party situation. Um, that, goes, uh, uh, that goes on to be a, a continuing problem, uh, especially with the Pharisees. They had distanced themselves from John the Baptist's rigorous asceticism, and now as Jesus' ministry unfolds, they find him in conflict. Uh, they, they are in conflict with him uh, because he seems to reside at the other end of the scale. He's way too comfortable in the midst of parties, and they call him a glutton and a drunkard. Um, I think that's always a tension. F.B. Meyer once said, it's easier to be separated from the world than like the Savior and be in it, but not of it. Easier to decline an invitation to the house of the great than to go there and behave as the Son of God. Easier to refuse the things of sense than to use them without abuse. Easier to maintain a life of prayer far from men than to enter with them maintaining constant fellowship with God in the unruffled depths of the soul. I think happy and wise is the person who can use Christian liberty without abusing it. Cana is about 16 kilometers from Nazareth and Mary's involvement in this wedding, her interaction with the servants uh, and her obvious concern at the potential humiliation of the hosts indicate that the wedding was likely uh, to have been someone from their extended family. In that culture, weddings were not just a day as they are in ours, they could go on for seven days, and the groom was obligated to supply for the guests for the whole of that period. To run out of a supply of food or wine at a wedding like that would be an incredible embarrassment, a humiliation in what is a shame-based culture. It could mean a lifelong slur on the bridegroom who, would be res who was responsible for you know, the, the abundance of provisions. It could actually result in a lawsuit against him from the aggrieved relatives of the bride. So things are going south really quickly and Mary turns to Jesus for help. I don't think that she was looking for a miracle. She wasn't saying, hey, it's a good time to use your superpowers. 
The stories of Jesus working miracles as a child have no basis in either scripture or reliable tradition. Mary is turning to him because she's learned to rely on his resourcefulness rather than his miracle working power. Tradition has it that Joseph had died some years earlier and that Mary had leaned heavily on her firstborn for support. She wasn't expecting a miracle. Her request was much more like, do you think you could make some arrangements to get some wine from somewhere before this thing becomes a disaster? In verse four, we have Jesus' enigmatic response. He says, woman, what does that have to do with me? My hour has not come. And in our culture, that sounds kind of offhand, dismissive, or even just plain rude. But it isn't the connotation in the original Greek. It's hard to translate the, uh, the word woman into our English, but my dear lady or ma'am would possibly get as near as we could get. It's the same word that Jesus used when he was hanging on the cross and he's handing John uh, the care of his mother and he says, woman, your son, son, your mother. It's not a derogatory term. No disrespect is intended in that term. But the phrase, what does this have to do with me, perhaps involved in that is a gentle rebuke. Uh, This is a common expression in Jewish idiom and it's used to uh, create a sense of distance, uh, to indicate there's a divergence between the thoughts of this party and that party. There isn't anything in common between us. And I'm wondering, and this is just supposition, but I'm wondering if Jesus was indicating that their relationship is about to undergo a significant transition. During the growing up years, he was subject to his parents and more latterly to Mary, but now he is in the process of disengaging. And the previous season of Mary's control over him is is now over. And before Mary can see the full manifestation of God's glory through Jesus, she has to be delivered from her desire to control him. Jesus' purpose is to come and to do the will of his father and and from this moment on, not the will of his mother. I I imagine that would be a difficult season for Mary. It's a difficult season for all parents as their children fly the nest and the level of control changes. Uh, That separation, by the way, climaxes later in the ministry when Mary and her other children come to take Jesus back under control because he has, in the original Greek, he's flipped his lid, he's he's out of his tree and we need to come and take control. And the people say, your mother and your brothers are outside and Jesus said, who is my mother and who are my brothers? Those who do the will of God, they are my mother, they are my brothers. Even family ties have to be subordinated to the divine mission. And then he says, my hour has not yet come. This is a crucial phrase in the Gospel of John worth noting down and tracing it through. When it happens, there are seven times it says my hour and there are when you add other phrases like my time it's significantly more but it's one of the devices that John uses to kind of build drama in the gospel it is nearly always a reference to the cross Jesus was very conscious of the fact that he had been sent by the father to accomplish a mission and he lived in constant awareness of it so in chapter 2 verse 4 and chapter 4 verse 21 In 4.23, in 5.25, 5.28, 7.6, 7.8, 7.30. 
my time has not yet come. And then on top of that, you've got, if you're taking notes, chapter eight, verse 20, his hour has not yet come. Chapter 12, verse 23, the hour had come. Chapter 12, 27, shall I ask the Father to save me from this hour? Chapter 13, verse one, knowing that his hour had come. 16, 32, the hour comes when you will be scattered. And then 17, one, the hour has come. This is a phrase that occurs again and again and again in the Gospel of John. And when you have something reoccurring like that, you have to explore it. I, I think this story of water to wine is a metaphor for the whole of his life and his mission. The wine had run out, as it does with all earthly parties and promises. The promises of this world cannot deliver. Devastation, humiliation, and shame are about to occur, and Jesus is gonna to have to pick up the pieces, and he knows what it's gonna cost him. The only way people can drink the wine of the kingdom of God, the cup of joy, is because he's going to drink the cup of God's wrath. And I think there's a clear link between blood and wine. We have the joyous wine because he shed his blood. As I said, I think there are echoes in this passage of the eschatological feast that's mentioned in uh, Isaiah 25, verses six through eight, where the prophet says, on this mountain the Lord all-powerful will prepare for all nations a feast of the finest foods. Choice wines and the best meats will be served. Here the Lord will strip away the burial clothes that cover the nation. The Lord all-powerful will destroy the power of death and wipe away all tears. No longer will his people be insulted everywhere. The Lord has spoken. When you see weddings in the scripture, ultimately it, they point to that eschatological end time wedding. Verse five, as I said to you, is Mary's last words. And then verse six. At the feast, there were six stone jars, water jars that were used by people for washing themselves in the way that their religion, that by the way is the oral law, not the scripture. The oral law was developed by the Pharisees on top of the scripture. So it was the oral law that told them how to do all these washings. So uh, there were water for washing as their religion said they must. Each jar held about 100 liters. I was reading this in my dear old King James and it said that these water jars held two or three firkins apiece. And I thought, what on earth is a firkin? So I got my dictionary and checked the o o Oxford Dictionary. It threw great light on the subject. It told me that a firkin was half a kindlekin. So, <laughs> so I, I knew. Um, strict Pharisees would have regarded the transforming or, or the transformation of the contents of the water pots set aside for ritual purposes as complete disrespect for the traditions of ritual purity and, and, and casting off the law. But in this instance, Jesus values human need far more highly than the contemporary scruples regarding ritual requirements. When there comes a want of wine, religious laws can't help. Only Jesus with the redeeming possibilities that he brings into the situation can change the mundane into the extraordinary. And what Jesus does is provide 600 plus liters of wine so that the party can continue. In modern day terms, that's about $27,000 worth of wine. And that's a lot of wine by anyone's standards. Uh, it could have been conceived as a gift for the couple as they may well have been able to sell that which was left over to set themselves up for the rest of their lives. The fact that Jesus turned water into wine, as I mentioned before, becomes a problem for some people. 
And I've seen people do all kinds of exegetical jumps and twists to try and get Jesus off the hook by saying that the wine was unfermented grape juice and not alcoholic beverage. Pun intended, but that's a fruitless pursuit. All the evidence suggests that Jesus produced 600 liters of alcoholic wine. And uh, for that, as I say, for some people that's a problem. But verse 10 says, when the people were well drunk, the Greek word methuo is the usual word for intoxication. Now what I'm not saying is that the scriptures and Jesus endorse drunkenness. They don't and he didn't. But I wanna tell you it's also very difficult to make a case for total abstinence from, this, from, from uh, alcoholic beverage as well. Maybe it's that balance that I talked about you know, before when I said wise is the person who can have liberty and not abuse it. Some people just, you know, I'm, I'm aware some people come from homes that have been devastated by alcohol and feel very strongly about this. By all means feel strongly, but don't try and make the scriptures say something that they clearly don't. The manner in which Jesus does this miracle deserves special mention because there's no visible action that accompanies it. There's no word of command, he doesn't pray, there's no laying on of hands, he simply wills it. And no person in scripture works a miracle like this. This is nothing other than an act of God himself. Remember when I said last week, when you're reading the things that John talks about, you have to read it through the lens of the, pro, the, the prologue because what you are seeing or what you will see are the words of God and the acts of God. And this is a powerful illustration of that. So the maitre d' tastes the wine, makes his famous comment about the best wine being left to last. The custom apparently was to serve the most expensive wine first and when people have drunk quite a bit and lost their ability to, to detect the exact flavor, you bring out the cheapest stuff. And that is the way that the world functions, isn't it? It functions like put your best foot forward best foot forward first. A bit like Daniel's image, it starts with a head of gold, but you know you're coming towards clay feet at the end. God's way is quite different. First the walk, the work, then the reward. First the battle, then the victory. First the cross, then the glory. The best to last. And verse 11 says, this is the beginning of the signs that Jesus did. The Greek word for beginning there is the word ake, from which we get our English word archetypal. An archetypal or an archetype is an original pattern or a model or a prototype. And I wonder, and this you know, might bear more thinking about, but I wonder that the transformation of water to wine is a kind of archetypal pattern of how God actually works because he calls out of the water something that is not there. He creates something completely new and maybe that's prophetic of the new creation with maybe going away and thinking about that. So from this uh, incredible miracle, the disciples are stunned by what they see. He manifests his glory and the disciples believe. And then the rest of chapter two, verse, or at least verses 12 through 22, record Jesus going down to, or going up to Jerusalem and cleansing the temple and all of the controversy that surrounds it. And I think these two incidents, one in Cana and the other in Jerusalem, um, I think there's a link between them. In order for the new wine of the kingdom to flow, obstacles need to be removed and often the biggest obstacle of all is religion. 
Now, it's interesting, but the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, record Jesus cleansing the temple at the end of his ministry during the final Passover week that led to the crucifixion. You'll find that in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19. And many scholars argue that what's happened here is John has moved the account that occurred at the end of Jesus' ministry and has transposed it to the beginning of Jesus' ministry, that there was only one cleansing of the temple and not two. Well, it's, it's not really possible to resolve that dilemma with any certainty, but for me, the natural reading of the text, the most natural reading of the text, suggests there was two one at the commencement of his ministry recorded by John and another at the end of his ministry recorded by the synoptics. So Jesus goes to the temple and the court of the Gentiles in the temple precincts uh, was, was, was something of a marketplace. Now you have to understand why, but at Passover time, people literally came from all over the then known world, the Mediterranean area, to support to celebrate the Passover feast. It's unreasonable to assume that they would take an animal from their flock and carry it or herd it or put it in a boat and carry it all the way to Jerusalem for sacrifice. So what they would do is they would turn the animal into currency where they lived, then they would bring their currency to the temple where it would be um, ultimately used to purchase another animal for sacrifice. But there were some difficulties along the way because Roman coins weren't acceptable for sacrifice. Only Jewish coins could be used because of the effigy of the emperor on the Roman coin and it was considered idolatrous by the Jews. So they had to change the Roman coin into the Jewish coins and then purchase an animal. Now that seems that a, you know, it's a service that could be regarded as a reasonable one, except that it had, uh, as is so often the case, it had degenerated into a money-making scam and prices were inflated as much as 10 times. With that also, the Gentiles had been pushed to the margins of an area that was supposed to be reserved for them. And the sacred temple, verse, eight, verse 16 says, had become, Jesus said, a house of merchandise. Now there's a little bit of background to that phrase. This house has become a house of merchandise, he says. You go back into the Old Testament to the book of Hosea, Hosea chapter 12, and God is bringing a reproof against Ephraim and Judah. And he's saying, you are nothing like your father Jacob. And in verse seven of chapter 12, it says, he's a merchant. The balances of deceit are in his hands and he loves to oppress. Speaking of Israel, he's a merchant. And in the margin of my Bible, it changes that word merchant to the word Canaan. Because the word merchant is the word that was used to describe a Canaanite. And here's the prophet looking at the people of Israel who were supposed to go into Canaan and cleanse the land of the Canaanites. And he's saying, you have turned into Canaan. You have the balances of deceit in your hand. I brought you into the land to make it Israel and Canaan has made you Canaan. You're Canaanites. And in Zechariah chapter 14 and verse 20, it says, in that day there shall be upon the belts, the bells of the horses, holiness unto the Lord. And the pots in the Lord's house shall be like the bowls before the altar. Yes, every pot in Jerusalem and in Judea shall be holiness unto the Lord of hosts. And all they that sacrifice shall come and take of them and cook therein. And in that day, there shall be no more Canaanite in the house of the Lord. Jesus is in the temple, he says, you've turned it into a house of merchants. And they understood the link. You've turned it into Canaan. 
This was supposed to be the most sacred spot in all of Israel. You were supposed to rid this land of every trace of Canaanite behavior, and here it is in the temple, and like Ephraim, you are Canaanites. You are Canaan. When Jesus sees that, the Bible says he's stirred by holy zeal. And it's hard to imagine that one person could create such a ruckus that everybody fled. I don't know whether they saw something burning in his eyes or whatever, but as he's turning over the tables, the disciples note the the zealousness that drives him. And it's a quote from Psalm 69, verses seven through nine. It is for thy sake that I have borne reproach. That shame has covered my face. I've become a stranger to my brethren and alien to my mother's son. For zeal for thy house has consumed me and the insults of those who insult thee have fallen on me. The disciples didn't understand it at the time, but it says in hindsight they looked back and they, and they saw it. They saw the connections. I find it really interesting that in verse 18, if you're looking at it, it says, the, G, the Jews answered. And I thought, answered what? Jesus hasn't asked a question. What Jesus had done was challenged them and they recognized the challenge and they knew they had to answer it. They questioned his authority to act in this manner. Show us a sign to indicate that you have authority to function in this way. And Jesus responds with his famous words, destroy this this temple and in three days I will raise it up again. Now he wasn't changing the subject. They had said show us a sign and he said the sign will be The temple will be destroyed three days later, it will be raised again. And he's stating that his death and resurrection will be the ultimate vindication and sign of his authority. Again, not understood at the time by anybody, including the disciples. Verse 22 says they didn't get it until later. John tells us that the temple that he had spoken of was the temple of his bodies, and the Jews don't understand that. They think he's talking about the physical temple. And by the way, they never let him forget that. When he was hanging on the cross, two of the synoptics say that the people came to him and said, ha, you're the one who said you'd destroy the temple in three days and there you are, save yourself, loser. They never let him forget it. But the temple that he'd spoken of was his body. They say, you can't build a temple in three days. This has been 46 years in the building and it's still not finished and you're gonna raise it in three days? John comments, but the temple he had spoken of was his body. Jesus is claiming to be the ultimate meeting place between God and people. That's what the temple was in Jerusalem. The temple was the meeting place under the terms of the old covenant where God met with his people, where there would be forgiveness of sins. Jesus now claims to be that temple. He claims that in my body is the ultimate meeting place between God and people. It's an astonishing claim. Ultimately, Jesus wasn't going to just cleanse the temple, he was going to totally replace it. And the physical temple is a shadow and Jesus is the reality. All through John, I mentioned this last week, I'll mention it again and again as we go through, but there is this crass, crude literalism in terms of how they interpret his statements. He's talking about his body as being the temple. They think he's talking about the physical temple. In the next chapter, or a couple of chapters on, Nicodemus says, do do I have to go back into my mother's womb to be born again? In the next chapter, that's chapter three, in chapter four, he's talking to the woman at the well about living water and she's scratching her head and said, but how are you gonna get it? You haven't got a bucket. 
And then in chapter six, when he's talking about eating my body and eating my flesh, and they're going, this is disgusting. This is cannibalism. And they never can make this transition from spiritual, from, from what Jesus is talking about to seeing it as spiritual realities. They, there's always this crass kind of, what? Literalism. Anyway, verse 23 and 25, um, Jesus is working some miracles and it says, during the feast, many people believed. I love the J.B. Phillips version of that. It says, during the festivities, many people believed. You know what? No great commitment is required during times that we would say are festivities. It's easy to believe. Commitment is always tested during the more stressful times, and it's not far on in John's Gospel, chapter six, where people who had believed during the festivities left during famine time. They thought, this is too hard. I'm out of here. I, I, I'm, not gonna, I'm not gonna walk anymore with this guy. Real faith is, real faith is not evidenced in the easy times, and, but in the mundane times when real discipleship kicks, kicks in. It says the people trusted Jesus when they saw the signs that he did, but then it says, but Jesus did not trust himself to them. Their belief was shallow, it was based on the spectacular, the arresting, the startling, and such belief is always evanescent, it's always fleeting. When the miracles stop, so often the commitment does too. And it says there, Jesus did not commit himself to this group of people, even though they committed themselves to him, because he knew what was in man. Then you go to chapter three and it starts off now. Equally translated, but. And a contrast is being set up between the people who'd believed during the festivities whose belief was shallow, but there was a man called Nicodemus. I've said this before, but but is, you know, if you remember your English, is what we call a disjunctive conjunction. It, it, it separates ideas. It, it, it recognizes a connection, but it separates the ideas. So you've got this, but then you've got that. And a connection is being set up between the story that's just been told in the end of chapter two and what Jesus is about to do in chapter three. But there was another man. John is linking the Nicodemus story with what has immediately preceded it. Jesus couldn't commit himself to these people, but there was a man among the Pharisees named Nicodemus to whom he does commit himself. Now, it's become almost an expository habit to demean Nicodemus, and I've heard lots of people over the years call him a secret disciple, he was a coward, he came at night. Um, you know, I'm not so sure that that's true. It may do well to, rem we may do well to remember that it was him and Joseph Arimathea, the so-called secret disciples, who buried Jesus when all the loud shouting crowd had run away. G. Campbell Morgan once said, sometimes there's more courage in quietness than in noise. Now, he did come at night, and when his name is mentioned in the gospel, as it is in John chapter seven, verse 50, and John chapter 19, verse 39, it always says this was the one who came by night. So I think maybe there is something significant there, but what it is, we're left to guess. To assume that it might have been cowardice, I think reads into the text perhaps more than is intended, because it doesn't say that. It may have been fear, but it may just as easily have been busyness. He was an important man, and perhaps both their schedules necessitated an evening visit. It may simply have been Nicodemus' desire for privacy. He was grappling with some soul-searching questions, and he needed time for dialogue, and he wanted Jesus to himself for a bit. 
Jewish scholars often studied in the night hours, especially when they had occupations that required their attention during daylight hours. Now, John does use the idea of night sometimes to make a spiritual point. Much later in the gospel, after the Last Supper, it says Judas went out into the night to betray him. And this, you know, this irony and profundity in, in that statement. And sometimes John does use night like that, but we're, we're not sure. Um, I think, however, Jesus saw something in this man that he knew that he could build on something that wasn't in the crowd that believed during the festivities. And though it was slow, there was a definite progress in this man's faith uh, as the gospel unfolds. So in chapter seven where he's mentioned, the Pharisees are in session and they're railing against uh, against Jesus and Nicodemus stands up and suggests he needs to be given a fair trial. Well, uh, it, it takes courage actually to stand up in the face of that kind of intimidation. And of course in chapter 19, it's Nicodemus and Joseph who come to bury Jesus when all the others have fled from the scene. So we see a seed that is developing. Verse 10, Jesus calls Nicodemus the teacher in Israel. The expression in the original suggests a title. Not, you're a teacher in Israel and you don't get this. He's saying, you are the teacher in Israel and you don't get this. It's like, he is the Regis Professor of Divinity. He's the Grand Mufti, the head honcho, the most popular teacher in Israel at the time. Uh, implications of that phrase, he is the teacher in Israel. By the way, when it says of Jesus, he is the carpenter of Nazareth, some people think Nazareth was so small it only had one and he was it. It may well have been, however, that Nazareth was quite a a bustling town. G. Campbell Morgan says, as many as possibly 15,000 people. And there were plenty of carpenters, but he was the carpenter. If you wanted a great job at an honest price, he was the carpenter. So here is the teacher. And uh, he comes to Jesus, his uh, approach to Jesus is, is respectful. Verse two, he says, Rabbi. Apparently, there were degrees of respect using that term, Rab, Rabbi, Rabban. It was a collegial rabbi. And he says, you're a teacher and you've clearly come from God. I think those are considered words. They're not just simply an introductory throwaway. There had been lots of supernatural signs that had accompanied Jesus's ministry, even though John has only recorded one to this point. During the festivities though, it says people believe because they saw the signs, plural. Remember we said last week, John's gospel is selective. He only chooses a few. And the signs that he chooses are that belief might happen in us so that life might happen in us. That's the statement of purpose at at the end of the gospel. So he's seen the signs. There's a supernatural ministry that's accompanying Jesus. And uh, he's taken by it. He's wondering, is this the one? Um, could he possibly be Messiah? Nicodemus is probing. He's hesitant, as we probably all would be, to make a full commitment, and he's tentatively inquiring, are you you the one, or is there another? Are you, a bit like John the Baptist, are, are you just one in a long line of teachers that have come to speak to us about God? But Nicodemus is going to be brought by Jesus to a place where he recognizes that Jesus is not just a teacher sent from God, but he is God come to teach. 
People still make that very mistake today, by the way. They're willing to call Jesus a teacher from God, but very few are willing to say he is God come to teach. In verse five, sorry, in verse three, in verse five, and verse 11, John uses a term, or Jesus uses a term, variously rendered, most assuredly, sometimes verily, verily, occasionally, truly, truly, and even more rarely, amen, amen. In the synoptics, that phrase always occurs singly, just truly. In John, it's always doubled, truly, truly. And whenever you find it, it's worth looking at because it's always in connection with something extremely important, something not to be missed. A revelation about some fundamental reality of life, a basic elementary fact of life that if we miss, we're not gonna be able to live realistically in this world. And he says, truly, truly, Nicodemus, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I'm gonna take time to look too deeply into that phrase, born again. The Greek word is anothen, and it has three possible meanings. From the beginning, like completely, radically, again in the sense of a second time or possibly from above. And that tends to be its primary meaning. Later, Jesus was to say to Pilate, my kingdom is from above and no the end. I, I wouldn't fight over that. I, I don't think we have to choose between those three things. I think it actually implies all three. And so we could say, this new birth is a radical new beginning, a second birth from above, Nicodemus. It comes from above. And if it doesn't happen, you will not be able to see the kingdom of God. This indicates unless this happens, there'll be a lack of perception. By the way, the kingdom of God doesn't mean heaven. What Jesus is not saying here is, if you aren't born again, you, you won't go to heaven. That's what we tend to make it say in the evangelical West, but that's not what Jesus was saying. Kingdom of God isn't talking about heaven, it's talking about the rule of God in the affairs of men and women in the here and now. And he's saying, unless you are born again, you won't see it. You won't see it happening. Jesus is saying, unless you are born from above, your ability to perceive what I'm doing in the, uh, in, in, the, in the world, in the hearts and lives of men and women, it'll be absent. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, the natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, they are foolishness unto him, neither can he know them because they're spiritually discerned. Same kind of truth, unless you're born again, you won't see this. Now, I'm interested that Nicodemus doesn't ask, why must I be born again? And that's the question a lot of people ask when they're told, you have to be born again. They go, why? What's wrong with me? I've lived a good life. I've paid my debts. I'm a good citizen. I'm faithful to the duties of my family, the society I'm in and the state. Why? It manifests a complete ignorance of, of, of a person's fallenness. And, and people tend to say, well, I'm not a bad person. One liberal scholar commenting on being born again said, what man needs is not regeneration in the old sense of the word, the biblical sense, or a change of nature, but simply an awakening to what he really is. Man's nature is one with God and he simply needs to awake to that fact. Well, I agree that we need to be awakened. I'm just disagree in terms of what we'll find when we do wake up. Because I think what we find when we start to come into contact with real divinity, with, real, with the presence of God is the sense of being completely undone. It's what Isaiah said, oh my God, woe is me. I'm, I'm completely undone. Peter falls down and says, oh, depart from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. 
Nicodemus is spiritually astute. He doesn't say, what, I'm a, I'm a rabbi, I'm part of the Sanhedrin, what are you talking about? I have to, uh, he doesn't ask, why must I be born again? He asks, how can I be born again? I know my need, that's why I've come to you, Jesus. But Nicodemus's response is a sad reflection of the nation's spirituality at this time. He's the primary teacher, the most popular teacher in Israel, but there's this crass literalism again that affects the whole story and it manifests in, its, in, in him too. He says, do I have to go back into my mother's womb? I mean, how, how is that possible? Jesus is speaking about a radical change and, and it shouldn't have been news to Nicodemus. Ezekiel talked about it. Ezekiel said in chapter 36, verse 26, I will give you a new heart and I'll put a new spirit within you. I'll take out the heart of stone, the heart of your flesh, and I'll, and I'll give you a heart of flesh. Moffat says, and I'll give you a nature that can be touched. I'll take away the old stony stuff and I'll give you something that's malleable and pliable and soft and tender in my hands. And he goes on to state, and it will be as a result of the work of water and the spirit. In verse 25 of Ezekiel 36, I will sprinkle clean water on you. In verse 27, and I'll put my spirit within you. And here's Jesus saying, Nicodemus, by the water and by the spirit, you have to be born again. Nicodemus should have made the connections. He, he probably knew the scriptures by heart as many of the Sanhedrin did, but he didn't make the connection. That language should have triggered his memory. So Jesus in verse five repeats the need for the new birth. Nicodemus, it's vital. Verse seven, you must be born again. Now, when Jesus uses the word must in the Gospels, he is normally referring to himself and the sense of divine impelling, this, this sense of mission that he lives under. And in Luke 2.49, he says, I must be about my father's business. And in Luke 4:43. I must preach the kingdom of God in other cities. In Luke 24, verse 44, all things must be fulfilled. In Mark 8:31, the Son of Man must suffer many things. He's moving under this divine sense of mission. It's, it's, it's brought out in that phrase, my hour, and here he's talking about the, the must of divine propulsion. There's only two occasions when he takes that word must and he speaks to us about it. And he says, when you worship, you must worship in spirit and in truth. And here he says, you must be born again. Someone once asked John Wesley why he preached so often on this text. Why do you preach on that text, you must be born again? And he responded, because you must. You must be born again. In this verse, Jesus replaces see with enter. He first says, you, unless you're born again, you won't see the kingdom. Here, he says, unless you are born again, you won't enter the kingdom. Again, he's not talking about heaven. See has to do with, with perception. Enter has to do with participation. In order to see and participate in kingdom life, we have to be born from above. Then Jesus goes on to say, because Nicodemus, that which is born of flesh is flesh, and that which is born of spirit is spirit. He's saying, Nicodemus, like begets life. It always, uh, like, it always has, it always will. And flesh here doesn't mean sinful flesh, as in like Galatians 5, the works of the flesh. It simply means human. 
Good and bad isn't the issue here in that text. Spiritual birth must be from above because it cannot be produced by human means. Now Jesus has already, or John has already referenced this back in chapter one, where in verse 12 he said, as many as received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. To those that believe in his name, who were born from above, doesn't say that, but he's referencing that, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of flesh, nor of the will of men, but of God, who were born is a reference there to the new birth that Jesus is now speaking to Nicodemus about. And he's saying, Nicodemus, flesh begets flesh. This requires spirit. It can't be of blood. You, you can't appeal to your bloodline. You can't appeal to the fact that you've got a goodly and godly heritage. It, it, your grandparents or your parents may have been good and godly, but for you, it carries no weight. This is the very thing that the, that the Jews were talking about later on when they said, we're the children of Abraham. And Jesus says, it doesn't cut the mustard. You must be born again. You can't rely on the lineage of blood, nor on the will of the flesh. That speaks of our natural effort and exertion. Flesh won't and can't change flesh to spirit. It might be sincere, it might be hardworking flesh, but it will only ever be sincere, hardworking flesh. You have to be born from above into the spiritual realm. You can't work or will your way into it. So it's not of blood, it's nor of the will of men, uh, nor of the will of the flesh, nor by the will of men. I think what John is saying there is the deeds and acts of desires of others can't bring other people into the kingdom. You may sincerely desire someone to be born again, but you can't produce it. You can sincerely bring your baby for christening, but you cannot regenerate the heart of the child. You, they must be born again. Jesus is trying to get this truth over to Nicodemus. Flesh and spirit can be seen in a number of different ways, and I'm not gonna expound on this, but you might just, if you wanna jot these words down, go back and think about them. But flesh and spirit are each uh, dimensions, dominions, and dynamics, all right? They are dimensions, they are dominions, and they are dynamics. In terms of dimension, we can be born from above, born of the Spirit, but we live our life out in the flesh dimension. And flesh here, again, doesn't carry the idea of evil or sinful, it simply means human. When we're born again, we're not removed from the dimension of flesh. The reality is we're made of flesh and blood, we live in a flesh and blood world, and we have to grapple with living in that dimension. Now, people who are not born again live only at the level of flesh. They have what we talked about last week, they have bios. Once you're born again, you're introduced to Zoe, but that Zoe still has to be lived out as far as we live in the dimension of flesh. When you come to Christ, you're extended by the life of the Spirit to embrace another dimension, and we as believers walk in two dimensions, both fleshly and spiritually. Trouble arises when we neglect one or the other, when we exaggerate one at the expense of other, and I'm sure some of you have met People who are so super spiritual, you wonder if their feet actually touch the ground when they walk. You know, they're, they're, they're forever living in the realm of the spirit. Or the monastics who retreated to the desert so they could be away from the dimension of, of flesh. We can't escape from it. We move in that dimension. But, um, but it's not to rule our lives because the next phrase is a dominion. 
Flesh and spirit are not only dimensions, but they are dominions. That, that's, living, that's not just living in a realm, that's living under a rule. And you might like to read Romans chapter eight, verses one through nine, and the Living Bible is particularly poignant as you read it, where it says in the end of that, that's why those who are still under the control of their own sinful selves, bent on following their own evil desires, can never please God. They live not in the, just in the dimension of flesh, but under a dominion of flesh. You are not like that, Paul says. You are controlled by your new nature if you have the Spirit of God living in you. And remember that anyone who doesn't have the Spirit of Christ living in them is not a Christian at all. So there's a, we live in a, a dimension. We live under a dominion. And we're supposed to live under the dominion of the Spirit. And then thirdly, flesh and spirit are also dynamics. By that I mean not only have we come into a new realm under a new dominion, but we have available to us by virtue of that birth from above a new dynamic, an energizing force that operates. And there's a force that operates in the dyna dynamically in, in, these in these dominions of both flesh and spirit. There's a passage in Ephesians chapter four, verses 22 through 24, and it reads like this, that you put off concerning your former conduct the old man which grows corrupt according to the deceitful lusts. That's the dominion of flesh. And it's interesting that the word deceitful there is personified. What it's saying is these deceitful lusts are driven by a dynamic, that is a person. And that person is, the, is Satan, it's the satanic realm. And then it goes on, but you need to be renewed in the spirit of your mind, that you put on the new man and live under a new dominion that is created according to God in true righteousness. And that word is personified. Not only is there a dynamic that energizes that dominion of flesh, but there is a dynamic that energizes the dominion of the spirit, and it's the spirit of God. So flesh is both a dimension that we all live in, it's a dominion under which, one of the, under which we have to live in one of them, and there's a dynamic that goes with those dominions. So there's a lot in this that Jesus is speaking to Nicodemus about. In verse seven, in the light of this truth, Nicodemus, don't be surprised that you must be born again, because you must. Jesus as he's dealing with Nicodemus, he realizes that this is a good man, but he's struggling. He's trying to get his head around this. And so Jesus tries to clarify by way of an illusion. And he speaks about the action of the wind. Now again, Nicodemus should have got this. When Jesus said, look, it's by water and spirit and you're born from above, his thinking should have gone straight to Ezekiel 36. Water, spirit, a new heart. I get this, I know where this comes from. And it's interesting that the very next chapter, chapter 37, is about the dry bones and the what? The wind that comes. Oh, I get it, I get it. Jesus, completely over Nicodemus' head. Maybe as they were sitting together that evening on a rooftop, an evening breeze was blowing, and Jesus' ears ever open to catch the parables of nature said, listen, Nicodemus, can you, can you hear and feel the wind? And he draws for Nicodemus an analogy between wind and spirit, or more precisely, between the effects of the wind and the effects of the spirit. And the internal cohesion of that analogy is really tight in the Greek language because it's the word for wind and spirit in the Greek is the same, pneuma. It's the same in the Old Testament, ruach. So wind and spirit, and, and that's a tight analogy. And perhaps he's saying something like, Nicodemus, you don't understand the wind. 
You don't know where it comes from, you don't know where it's going to, but you can see its effects. If you obey the wind, you can gain its effects and its power. Like, like a sailing ship. Nicodemus, you don't have to know everything about the Spirit. In fact, you'll never fully understand all of his ways, but if you obey him, and you'll gain that dynamic, you'll gain that energizing force, you'll be born again. Open up the sails of your life, Nicodemus. You don't have to be an expert in meteorology to be a good sailor. Poor old Nicodemus, he's struggling. He says, verse nine, but how can these things be? He's reeling, he's been shaken to the core, but he's honest about it and he doesn't bail out of the conversation. Verses 10 through 13, Jesus effectively says, Nicodemus, these are the building blocks of the kingdom. Mate, this is the ABC of spiritual reality. And if you don't understand this, and I'm giving you earthly pictures to try and help you, but if you don't get this, how are you gonna go on to anything deeper? Let me read to you verses 14 through 21. And Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so must the Son of God be lifted up, the Son of Man be lifted up, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God did not send the Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already, because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Um, having said to Nicodemus, you must be born again, Nicodemus. It comes from above by the Spirit you have to be introduced to this dominion and dynamic. And Nicodemus is struggling. He goes on having shown Nicodemus his need. He now shows him the means by which it's affected by the spirit from above. And he shows him the source. God so loved the world. That's the source of this. And the basis of it is that the son of God must be lifted up. So we have the need, you must be born again. The means, by the Spirit from above. The source of all this comes from the love of God and the basis of it is that the Son of God will be lifted up. It is that that makes possible, the, the Son of Man being lifted up makes possible the Spirit's operation in us. Without this act of dealing with the sin problem, there's no basis for a righteous, holy God to reach out to broken, sinful humanity. But God's love is such that he has provided the answer to the dilemma we face. He has dealt with the issue, and the, sin, uh, with the issue of sin in the person of his son and that opens up the way for mercy, grace and love to flow. And to illustrate this, Jesus reaches back into Israel's story and he tells the story that comes from Numbers chapter 21 verses five through nine. You can read it, but the people were grumbling and it says as a result of their disobedience and grumbling, serpents came into the camp, started to move among the people, bit them and as a result of the poison, many of them were dying. They came to Moses, it says, they cried out, we've sinned, uh, we've spoken against the Lord and against you, pray for us that these snakes will go away. So Moses prayed for the people and the Lord said to him, make a bronze replica of the snake, attach it to a pole, lift it up in the middle of the camp and whoever has been bitten, look at that snake and they will live. It's this story that Jesus then 
says to Nicodemus, the son of man must be lifted up. And the incident in Numbers is a foreshadowing, a type of how Jesus would be lifted up on the cross. The Israelites were in distress as a result of their disobedience. They're dying because of the poison of a serpent. Man's disobedience in submitting to the lie of the serpent has allowed death to flow. The remedy is a brass serpent that has to be lifted up in the midst of the camp. The thing that is lifted up is the very image of that which is causing the death and the suffering. It's at the cross that he who knew no sin was made sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. And Galatians 3, 3 says, he was made a curse for us. He became on that cross what, what we are. He took on that cross what we deserve. So the Israelites obtain relief and deliverance by looking at the serpent. They respond to Moses' instruction by faith and they found that the look of faith brought healing. And the Bible says that we look to Jesus on the cross and that's the beginning for us of deliverance and healing. And I wonder that if these healed, saved Israelites had been asked, how do you feel after you've looked at the cross? They would, they would have said, man, I've, I've got another chance at life. I, at life. I, I feel like I've been born again. I've got another shot. Isaiah 45 verse 22 says, look unto me and be saved, Jehovah speaking. We look to the cross and we are saved. Hebrews 2.12 says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. So we look back into the past and we are saved by virtue of the cross's work. Presently we look to the Saviour. We look to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. And Titus chapter two, I think it's verse 13 says, we look with expectation for the Son of God to come back from heaven. So we looked, we are looking and we will look. Sometimes, and you will have heard this in Pentecostal circles, we talk about lifting up Jesus as if it's an act of worship and praise. Lift Jesus higher. Some of you will remember an old song. And we've sung versions of that. Uh, we lift Jesus up and as we worship and we praise, um, people will be drawn to him. Well, of course, that is true. Praise is important and it's appropriate and people have always been drawn by divinely energized worship, but it isn't what Jesus is talking about here. The lifting up of John's gospel is always a reference to the cross. Later in John 8, 28, he says, when you have lifted up the Son of Man, you'll know that I am he. And then in John 12, verses 32 to 34, and if I be lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. That's still not about praise and worship, but about the cross. If Nicodemus had grasped this, which is probably doubtful given his record up to this point, he would have been shocked to the core because the Jews anticipated a Messiah who would come in power and glory and who would be lifted up and exalted in honor by all and in the sight of all. He did not, they did not, they could not conceive of a Messiah who would come to be lifted up to suffer and die. The suffering servant of Isaiah's songs simply wasn't in their theology, at least anyway, linked to the Messiah. Nicodemus clearly didn't get it, but the really cool thing is obviously the truth took root in this good and godly man. And three years later, he's there standing, identified with the crucified Messiah. Jesus knew all men and he entrusted himself to this one and as the Aussies would say, he came good. Now the source of this display of mercy and grace, as I said, is found in the love of God. 
And Nicodemus has been shown the incredible sacrifice of the son sent and crucified. And now he's given an insight into what motivated this. And it's about God's love. God so loved the world. The spontaneous, self-generated love of God that has no reference to the loveliness of the object on which it is poured. You know, Jesus later on in John 15 spoke about the hatred of the Jews toward him and he said, they hated me without a cause. There was nothing in me that evoked the hatred from their hearts. That hatred came out of their hearts. It has nothing to do with me. And the love of God comes out of his own heart. It actually has nothing to do with us. We do not earn it. We have not earned it. It comes out of God's own heart without any merit or reason in us. And it's the love that gives itself away to the object of its love. You, you know that Greek term, agape. By the way, it's the same word used in verse 19 where it says people love darkness. They loved the darkness. It's the same word. It's a self-giving love. It's a love that gives itself to the object. Some people give themselves to darkness. In verse 16, we're shown the origin of love. It's the father. We're shown the offering of love. It's the son. We are shown the object of love, everlasting life for all who will believe. And we're shown the breadth of that love. It is for whosoever. This verse has to be, verse 16, has to be probably the best known verse in the Bible. Martin Luther called it the Bible in miniature. And in the margin of my Bible, I've got it written down. I saw this sometime years and years ago and I wrote it down because I so loved it. It's the greatest verse in the Bible. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. And so for is the greatest reason. God is the greatest being. So is the greatest measure. Loved is the greatest love. The world is the greatest need. That he gave is the greatest act. His only begotten son, the greatest cost. That whosoever, the greatest offer, believes the greatest simplicity in him, the greatest refuge, should not the greatest prevention perish, the greatest loss, but the greatest alternative, have the greatest possession, everlasting, the greatest duration and life, the greatest force. All in all, the greatest verse in the Bible. Okay. This great whosoever, by the way, has to be matched with another whosoever. And it's found in the book of Revelation chapter 20, verse 15. Whosoever believes in the Son has life, but Revelation 20, 15 says, whosoever is not found in the written, its name is not found in the book of life, is cast into the lake of fire. The two great whosoevers that divide mankind. We divide mankind on all sorts of bases, from race, gender, um, economic earnings, intellectual capacity. There's really only two, whosoever believes and whosoever is not found in the book of life. Verse 17 reveals the heart of the Father. It wasn't to condemn the world, but to save it. He did not send the Son to condemn us. There's every reason for condemnation, but salvation is the goal. And then verses 18 through 21, even on the great day of judgment, really, I've said this many times before, but I think the great day of judgment is really God giving to people what they've already chosen. The last day doesn't create condemnation, it reveals it. It is the public proclamation of what has already been chosen. These people love darkness and they've given, they've given themselves 
two darkness and four darkness, and they are given what they have lived for and loved. I can't remember, maybe it was C.S. Lewis that said, lost souls will be what they willed to be. That's a powerful passage of scripture. Verses 22 through, 20, through 36, this is what we sometimes call John's recessional. And I won't take time to look on this in depth, but this is, the, this is the season where John is moving off the stage and Jesus is taking center stage. And transition is always a challenging season. All kinds of vested interests arise and surface. John is uttering the final words of the old economy. The herald is receding into the distance and the king is coming into view and the balance of power is shifting. John's popularity is waning and Jesus is gaining the crowds that had once flocked to hear John. And in verse 25, it says, a dispute arose between some of John's disciples and the Jews about purification. It was probably an argument about whose baptism really matters. Who's more significant? Who's more powerful? Who's more authoritative? John or Jesus? And I wonder that the Jews raised the question, in actual fact, not because they were committed to either because they rejected both. But when you've got two powerful movements happening, if you can set one against the other, guess who's gonna win, okay? And, and I wonder that this just wasn't some kind of ploy to divide and conquer. If the two streams of renewal begin to flow together, it might well create a river of such depth and force that it would be impossible to step, uh, to stop, and their tithe, their titles and their turf would be under threat. Let's make sure that does not happen. And so they throw in a, a spanner in the works to try and divide. They appeal to John, as it were, to do something, to say something, to stop the flow of people leaving his ministry and going to Jesus. John's disciples were jealous for him. You're losing people. People are leaving your church. They're going to this church. You've got to say something about this. It seems a little cheap and nasty from a distance, but I think if they're honest, many of us can identify with feelings like this, at least at some point in our lives. The insecurity of our hearts provides the enemy with ample material on which to try and create competition and division in the body of Christ. John manifests such a wonderful spirit. Like Moses before him, he is not threatened by the work of God being done in others and through others. Remember in Numbers chapter 11 when the spirit of prophecy falls and there are people prophesying all over the place and even out in the camp and, and Joshua is jealous for his master. Master, stop it, stop it. And, uh, and Moses says, don't be envious for my sake, Joshua. Would to God that all God's people would move like this. What a wonderful spirit. John is profoundly secure. He knows who he is. We talked about that last week. No, are you Messiah? No. Are you Elijah? No. Are you the prophet? No. Who are you? I'm the voice. He knows who he is, what he's been called to do. His years of preparation in the wilderness had secured him in God's call. And the disciples' complaint was based on the assumption that, John, your crowds are leaving. And John just laughs. They're not mine. They have never been mine. John didn't think like an owner, he knew he was a steward. And the task of the steward is to properly manage something that the owner has put into his hands and when the owner comes, the steward gives it back. Jesus, uh, John knew that the crowds leaving for Jesus never belonged to him in the first place. The owner had arrived. How inappropriate would it be for him to greedily seek to make them his own? The accolades of the crowd and the anticipation of his, of his disciples had not shifted his deep 
inner sense of balance. He knew who he was. And in verse 28, he says, all along I've told you who I am and who I'm not. I'm not changing gears now. He describes Jesus' ministry in Messiah terms, uh, in terms that they would be very familiar with. He says, he's the bridegroom. This is the bridegroom. Now that's a term that, again, as I say, Jewish people were very familiar with. Uh, it's, a, it's a term that God uses to describe his relationship with Israel. So in, in Isaiah 62, as a bridegroom rejoices over his bride, so God will rejoice over you. And now here's John, having said, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world, he says, here's the bridegroom. He says, my role is the friend of the bridegroom. The role of the friend of the bridegroom in the Western concept of a, of a best man, we would think, oh, he's the best man. They, they are quite different. In the West, a best man's role is a little cosmetic. You know, he gets the groom to the service on time, he holds the rings, he might read the messages at the speeches and might make a speech himself. But in the Eastern setting, the friend of the bridegroom was much, much more involved. He acted as the bridegroom's agent. He negotiated the proposal with the bride's family. He uh, contracted the marriage. During the betrothal period, it was the best man, the, the friend of the bridegroom who made sure that the bride was uh, catered for, looked after, remained true and pure. And it was he who at the ceremony handed the bride over to the groom. Until that point, the groom's voice was not heard. He didn't speak through the whole process until the friend hands over the bride. There were laws, by the way, that prohibited the companion from marrying this woman for himself. Even if the father refused the prospective groom's offer, the friend who had tried to negotiate the contract is now disqualified from making any approach to that woman. So the friend of the bridegroom is the very last person who would compete with the groom for the woman's affections. Under no circumstances is he allowed to marry that woman. It's a good word for we who are shepherds and leaders in God's flock. You know, sometimes, sometimes I've heard pastor's wives complain that they live in a marriage that has three people, the husband, the wife, and the church, because the church becomes the mistress, the point of obsession and affection. And I think once we get to that point as leaders, we have probably crossed over a line. The church is not our church. The crowds are not our crowds. We are stewards. Sounds like I'm preaching at a pastor's conference, doesn't it? Rather than be upset with what is happening, John is absolutely delighted. My, my task is complete. It's time now for his verse, voice to be heard and the great statement of verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. Perhaps no greater words have ever escaped human lips. Some scholars think that the last words of the chapter from verse 31 to verse 36 aren't John the Baptist speaking but John the gospel writer speaking and he has a six point comment on, comments on the supremacy of Jesus. So in verse 31 if you're reading it and you're taking notes, he is the final word. Many have preceded him, he is exceeded by none. They were, spent, they were sent to speak about God, he was God come to speak. 
So verse 31, he who comes from above is above all. He, is of the earth, he, he who is of the earth is earthly, speaks of the earth. He who comes from heaven is above all. So he's the final word. Verse 32, and what he has seen and heard, uh, that he testifies and no one receives his testimony. He is the authoritative word. He's not dealing with hearsay. He is speaking as an eyewitness. Others knew only and prophesied in part, but he saw fully. In verse 33, he's the true word. He who has received this testimony has certified that God is true. The ring of truth is always present in the testimony of Jesus. Even his enemies said, never has a man spoken like this. When they sent a deputation to arrest Jesus, Jesus arrested them and they came back and they said, where is he? And they said, never, never have we heard anybody speak like this. In verse 35, it says, uh, sorry, in verse 34, he's a living word, energized and animated by the Holy Spirit. The other prophets knew something of the touch of the Spirit on them, but on him the Spirit rested without measure. It says, for he whom God has sent speaks the word of God, for God does not give the Spirit uh, to him by measure. Verse 35, he's the loving word. He comes to exegete the Father's heart of love. He hasn't come to condemn or judge, but to save, heal, and deliver. And in verse 36, he's the saving word. It is not the Father's intention that any should perish. The Logos has come to show them life, but they have to respond to this invitation with faith. So we come to chapter four. And you've heard the story about the Good Samaritan. This is the story of the Bad Samaritan. The Good Samaritan was a fictional story about a man. The Bad Samaritan is a true story about a woman. And this passage reveals Jesus to be the thirst quencher. Some people think that thirst can be quenched by H2O, but it can't. Physical thirst, of course, can be. But we have other deeper thirsts that only Jesus can quench. So in verses one and two of chapter four, he leaves Judea. Right. Now this word left, by the way, is a really strong word in the original language. It's intentional and deliberate. And it wouldn't be a mistranslation to say he abandoned it. He abandoned it. The opposition was hardening. Remaining in the area could precipitate a premature crisis. He moves under the sense of divine timing. He referred to it, as I said, as my hour. And he wasn't gonna let the enemy precipitate something out of divine timing, so he leaves. And, and here's one of these divine musts. He says, I must go through Samaria. Now, if you didn't know anything about Jesus' time and simply looked at a map, that statement might seem a bit redundant because Judah was in the south, then Samaria above it, and then Galilee up the top. And to get from one to the other, you had to go through the middle, which is Samaria. That's the direct route from north to south. However, that's not the route that Jews would normally take because there is a deep history of animosity between the Jews and the Samaritans that I'm sure you know about. 500 years earlier, the northern king of, uh, kingdom of Israel had been taken over by the Assyrians. And in 2 Kings chapter 17, it tells us that the king of Assyria had resettled the area by bringing in captives from other nations. So Samaria had become a, a mixed and motley bunch along with Galilee. That's why, by the way, Isaiah talks about Galilee of the nations. You know, light has shown, Galilee of the nations. It's a derogatory term. They're a mixed bunch. The Jews who returned from Babylonian captivity would have nothing to do with this race of half-breeds. And you know in the story of Nehemiah and Ezra when these people said, they'll, work, they'll come and help us. No, we don't want your help. And there's this deep animosity between them. 
When the rabbis wanted to really insult Jesus, they called him a Samaritan. Are you a Samaritan, they say to him in John chapter eight. The rabbis made comments like, he who eats the bread of Samaritans, it is as if he ate swine's flesh. So if you wanted to really insult someone, you called him a Samaritan. Ironically, the woman in the story asked Jesus, are you not a Jew? It was mutual, okay. So with that kind of hatred existing between the devout Jews uh, and the Samaritans, they would go out of Judea, across the Jordan River, travel 70 miles out of their way, go up the other side, and then enter back into Jerusalem, having missed out Samaria entirely. So Israel had become selfishly indifferent toward their neighbors. Jesus says, I must needs go through Samaria. And I think he's making a protest at the pride and prejudice of the Jews. They failed to remember that they'd been blessed to be a blessing. And Jesus refuses to be constrained by their narratives and narrowness. There's a declaration that I am a savior for all people and there's this divine compulsion on them. I must go through Samaria. There are men and women there who need my touch. So he does. Verse five and six, he comes to Sychar where Jacob's well is found. And this passage highlights the essential humanity of Jesus. He's tired, he's thirsty, he's fatigued from a long journey. It's the sixth hour, uh, which scholars seem to suggest. It's a little difficult, it's a bit technical in the Gospel of John to see whether he's working with Roman time or Jewish time because they're slightly different. But there's an assumption by most scholars that the sixth hour is midday and the Middle Eastern sun had taken its toll on him and he sits down by a well. Now there's some background wallpaper to this that we really should take note of. John has just finished using an illustration of Jesus being the bridegroom and using wedding language to describe his mission and immediately after we have Jesus sitting by a well and you say, so what? Well again, Jewish readers would be acquainted with the fact that there are Old Testament stories where men found their brides by wells. Isaac's bride, Rebecca, is identified at a well. Jacob meets Rachel at a well. Moses meets Zipporah at a well. Is John hinting that we have a heavenly bridegroom seeking his bride? And a bit later in the conversation when she says, I have no husband. I wonder if Jesus is thinking you're gonna get one because I'm here as the bridegroom. As he's sitting at the well, the woman from Samaria comes to draw water. I'm sure you've heard people say this before, but midday isn't the normal time for a woman to draw water. Water was normally done, drawing water was normally done early morning or later in the evening to avoid the intense midday heat. And it was there that the woman would chat and socialize. And it suggested that this woman is a social outcast. Any woman that's had as many men as she has had would have created some enemies. And maybe it's just easier for her to come at midday when the others aren't around. She saw Jesus and clearly identified him as a Jew. The form and fashion of his countenance and the mode of his dress would have given him away. Perhaps she expects him to act as everybody else seemed to around her, just to ignore her and pretend that she just didn't exist. She would have been really shocked when he asked her for a drink. Possibly a manifestation of his wisdom, his psychological insight into people because the sense of having, one, uh, 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 having another obligated for a favor given is much more pleasant than the sense of being obligated for a favor received. And he said, could you please give me a drink? 
and he bestows on this woman incredible dignity. This would have shocked her to a core. It was surprising enough that Jesus walked through Samaria. It would have been even more so for him to talk with a Samaritan man, but a woman unheard of. Jewish men didn't even speak to Jewish women in public. A devout Jew would not even speak to his wife in public. Jesus not only speaks to the woman, but he asks to drink from her cup. And, and she says, but Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. This could be so easily rendered. Jews do not share vessels with Samaritans. You're asking to drink from my cup? This, this is to smash down racial and gender barriers. You know, a lot of people ask in this time, and I don't usually comment on politics, but a lot of people are saying, you know, what do you think about the racial issue? What do you think about Black Lives Matters? And I, I don't want to say too much apart from the fact that how can any follower of Jesus be a racist? It's just, it's just incomprehensible. It's an oxymoron. And, and to the degree that we are, we are not following Jesus. Here he is smashing down racial divides, gender divides. And, and he says to this woman, if you knew who was talking to you, you would ask to drink from his well, from his cup, because it's got living water in it. And Jesus is kind of talking to her about, he's talking about two wells, two types of thirst, two types of life life, bios and zoe, and he says, if you want, you can have the real one, the most important one. You can have your deepest thirsts quenched by the water that I give, because it comes as zoe life, not just biological life. In this conversation, there are different ways of speaking about well and water. When the Samaritan woman speaks of the well, she uses the word friar, which means a cistern or a hole dug in the ground for holding water, uh, figuratively used actually to describe a prison. It just collects rainwater, and, and since it's stagnant, it's sometimes referred to as dead water. Jesus uses another word to describe the source of his water, pege, which describes a bubbling fountain, something bubbling up from beneath, and it's living water. Jesus is saying to her, your well, the physical well on which you've fixed your eyes will never ultimately satisfy you, man. It's bios, and you need it at a physical level, but you will come again and again laboriously drawing without ever dealing and quenching your deeper thirst. If you allow me, I will give you water out of another well, zoe, and you will never need to drink again. And you will, in your, in your turn, become a well, because within you, this living fountain will break loose. Now this woman is exhausted emotionally and psychologically, as much as Jesus is physically. She, by virtue of the story we are told, has looked for love in all the wrong places, going from one dead-end relationship to another. I love the way Ken Geyer describes it. He says, she has gone from man to man like one lost in the desert, sunstruck and delirious. For her, marriage has been a retreating mirage. Again and again, she has returned to the matrimonial well, hoping to draw from it something that would quench her thirst for love and happiness. But again and again, she has left that well disappointed. You know what, some of the wells that we frequent, they might not be evil, but they are just bios. They're part of life, but they'll never quench the thirst we have for deeper meaning. And in the Old Testament, living water, of course, you know, is a symbol for the ministry of the Holy Spirit. You can see that in Isaiah 44, 
um, Isaiah chapter 12. I love the way the Psalm, Psalm 87 verse seven finishes speaking about the coming of the messianic kingdom and it says, all my springs are in you. All my fountains are found in you. Uh, she misunderstands. She takes it with the crassless literalism that everybody else seems to be captured with and she says, but you haven't got a bucket. How are you gonna get this water out? Jesus then says to her, and I'm winding to a finish, he says, you, you go and get your husband and come back. Jesus, knowing that if she is ever gonna be able to drink of this living water, goes to the point of her woundedness, humiliation, and shame. And he doesn't just say, go, you've had five husbands. He said, go, get your husband, come back. Church sometimes says, go. Jesus says, we're gonna have to deal with this, but, but come back. You know, if there'd just been go, she might have felt too ashamed to return. The comeback clearly meant he wasn't dismissing her with judgment and condemnation. I have no husband, she says, very brief and to the point. And Jesus reveals that he knows the situation. I wondered if she had gone back to the village thinking that Jesus didn't know about her marital disasters. She might have concluded that he would never have treated her so kindly and with such dignity if he really knew her circumstances. If you really knew who I was, you wouldn't have talked to me like that. But he does know, and he has not rejected her as others have done. It isn't surprising that she becomes the gospel's first evangelist. Now she does raise the issue of worship in verse 20. Well, you know, where do we worship? How do we worship? And some people, and I've done this too, assume that under pressure she's throwing up a theological smokescreen. Jesus has nailed her and she's now raising up a theological issue to try and throw the spotlight off. It could be, it could be, but perhaps it's not. Perhaps she's asking something like, okay, well, you've touched me profoundly, deeply. Where do I go to touch God? Perhaps this prophetic encounter with this man had made her long for God and long for worship. But in essence, Jesus is saying this isn't about place and time. God is spirit, so he can be everywhere at any time. You can deal with God right here, right now. And then she says, verse 25, I know Messiah is coming. The concept of the Messiah had been shaped by the Torah. For the Samaritans, they only accepted the Torah, the first five books of the Bible. They had no place for the prophets. So Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15 is the passage where Moses spoke of the prophet. She's already contemplated that Jesus might be this figure, verse 19. I, are you, are you the prophet? Now she's going further. The Samaritan word for Messiah is a, is a word tahib, and it means the revealer, the restorer. Are, are, are you Messiah? Verse 26, Jesus said, I am here. One of the great affirmations of the Samaritan Bible is Deuteronomy 32, verse 39. Now see that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. If this girl knew the Torah and knew the uh, Deuteronomy, she's making a link. Jesus is saying, I am he. This woman has been led on a wonderful journey of discovery. You go through this chapter and note the progression of the terms that she uses to describe Jesus. In verse nine she says, a Jew. You can almost hear her spit it out as the Jews would spit out Samaritan. Verse 11, she calls him sir. Verse 12, a, a patriarch. Verse 19, a prophet. Verse 25, Messiah. By the time you get to verse 42, they're talking about the savior of the world. 
This is a remarkable encounter. I'm gonna stop there. Uh, the remainder of chapter four has to do with the healing of the nobleman's son. He's back in Cana, the place where he turned water into wine, John's first sign. And it's almost like John links these two signs in some way, and perhaps we'll pick that up next week. Okay, halfway through chapter four, and we're halfway through the grove, so you can be sure that we aren't gonna get anywhere close to this, but, but I hope that it's stimulating you, I hope that you've got some little nuggets that you can take away, think about, follow through. Check the musts. Um, go, th- go through some of those thoughts that I've thrown out at you and, and think about them, is that all right? Hey, God bless you guys. Thank you so much for coming. Uh, Have a great rest of the week. May the Lord richly bless you as you keep reading the Gospel of John. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.